The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Emily Day, and this is an episode from the Lawfare Archives for November 20th, 2021. The Somali civil war has raged on for three decades now, and one of Africa's deadliest terrorist groups, Al-Shabaab, remains one of the country's most powerful political and military actors. Just as we saw with the botched withdrawal from Afghanistan in August, the American anti-terrorist campaign in Somalia has been stymied by an alliance with a weak, corrupt government and an unmanageable insurgent group. Some officials have said that the Biden administration could unveil a new Somalia policy in the coming weeks. For this week, I chose an episode from August 9, 2014, in which then-president of Somalia, Hassan Sheikh Mohammed, spoke with Brookings on the future of his country and addressed the challenges his state faces in its ongoing battle against al-Shabaab. I'm Cody Poplin, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, August 9, 2014. Yesterday, President Mohammed spoke at Brookings on the future of his country. As the U.S.-Africa summit came to an end in Washington, President Mohammed addressed the challenges to democracy that his country faces, and how Somalia, the African Union, and other international partners can work together to ensure security, foster development, and promote stable state building in the country. President Mohammed provides a realistic assessment of his country as it battles militant groups like al-Shabaab, but looks to bring the promise of democracy to fruition. Michael O'Hanlon, Senior Fellow in Foreign Policy at Brookings, provided introductory remarks and moderated the conversation. It's the Lawfare Podcast, episode number 87, President Hussein Sheikh Mohammed on the future of Somalia. Welcome to Brookings, actually to our friends across the street at SCIU. We're grateful for the space here. We're still waiting on some water, uh, but in just a moment, we'll get started. I'm Mike O'Hanlon with the Foreign Policy Program at Brookings. We are honored today to have the President of Somalia, Hassan Sheikh Mahmoud, visiting with us and speaking about his country, its challenges, and the broader region, and all that he's been able to do in his nearly two years in office, but all that still remains to be done, which, as you're all aware, is a great deal. Uh, But let me say a brief word of welcome uh, to the President and And then, once I'm done, ask you to join me in giving him a big Brookings round of applause uh, to welcome him again to Washington, where he's been part of the Africa Leaders Summit, and also just to thank him for the honor of his uh, presence here with us today. But before that, uh, he is a longstanding academic. If he were not president of Somalia, perhaps we'd be offering him a position at Brookings. Maybe someday we could be so fortunate. He uh, grew up in Mogadishu. 
and attended the Somalia National University, uh, graduating there in 1981, doing graduate studies in India, coming back to Somalia, toughing it out through all the difficult years that uh, have been experienced since then, helping found a new university in Somalia thereafter. And uh, Mr. President, I know you were the dean of, uh, of this uh, Samad University in Mogadishu for a number of years and taught there as well. Uh, in between, he had been involved in education uh, to some extent under UN auspices with UNESCO and UNICEF and also helping start some local schools in Somalia. So a great commitment to education and now a great commitment to the stabilization of his country and the reconciliation efforts with various elements, various clans and tribes that have often been at war in recent decades, and of course the development challenge that remains ahead because clearly creating a modicum of stability is just the first step towards helping Somalia truly get back on its feet. A, a word or two more of background and then we will uh, please uh, welcome the President. He's now working with an African Union force of some 24,000 soldiers from a number of countries, but four of them in particular with the largest contributions, uh, Ethiopia, Burundi, Uganda, and Kenya, and a number of other participants as well. One of the great encouraging things about this effort, which is showing indeed some true signs of hopefulness, is how much Africa and Africans are working together to deal with their own problems, how the African Union has really stepped up. And yes, there's a long way to go, but this is truly an effort uh, about which Africans can be proud as their ability to work together as an international group has really been manifested in recent years in Somalia. I think that uh, we will have a number of things to talk about today. I'm going to spend about a, a half hour with the President in a back and forth discussion and we will go through a few of the challenges his country is facing and then we'll open it up to you until about 11.20. Once we get to questions, uh, please state your name clearly after waiting for the microphone. We're fortunate enough to have some television coverage today and we'd like to make sure your questions get heard as well. But before we get to that, please join me in welcoming the President of Somalia, uh, Hassan uh, Muhammad. Mr. President, thank you for being here. Thank, thank you, Mike, and uh, thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much for coming and giving me this opportunity to talk to such a distinguished group of people in, in, the, in Washington. Just to give you a glimpse of what, what Somalia is, uh, Somalia is situated in the most cost, co corner tip of the uh, African continent, they call it the Horn of Africa. Uh, Somalia, in general, is a very, very rich country with the largest coastline in the African continent, 3,300 kilometers of coastline on both the Indian Ocean and the Red Sea. It located a very strategic location, both in the Cold War era and, and today in, 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 in this different era. It is in the doorsteps of Babel Mandeb and Suez Canal in the Red Sea and the vast Indian Ocean that's open to Asia and until the Cape of Good Hope. So Somalia is located there. Has a symmetric population of 10 million people with 8 million hectares of arable land with two permanent rivers throughout the year and number of uh, unpermanent uh, rivers. Somalia has the largest per capita uh, livestock herd in the African continent. So, and recently we were told that we have a huge uh, reserves of natural 
resources, gas, oil, and other minerals, we, which we don't know yet, but that's what at least that has been uh, said by the speculators. So this is the country. Um, besides that, Somalis are one ethnic group with one language, 100% Muslims, Sunni Muslims, with Shafi school of thought. Until recently, there were other uh, introductions into new, other new schools of thoughts in the, in the Sunni Muslims. So this is the country and uh, got its independence in the year of Africa in 1960. Somalia was one of those uh, 17, 18 countries of Africa who got their independence from the colonial powers in 1960. And again, Somalia was one of those African countries who experienced the state failure in 1990. Somalia, Ethiopia, uh, Rwanda, uh, Burundi, Liberia, Sierra Leone, this was a number of African countries that have, have having problem in the 90s. Uh, there was no one winner in Somalia after the state collapse. So the war against the the state later on become factional war, clan-based war, and uh, it was not easy to reorganize and get back to the mainstream of the statehood. In, in 2000 was the first time that a transitional government was established in Somalia. And since then, there was a successive transitional governments in place until 2012 when we ended the transition after 12 years. Uh, the government, um, the president, is the first non-transitional government in place in almost 22 years. Uh, we come through a reconciliation and different clans get together, reconcile it, establish a provisional constitution, uh, nominated a, a new parliament which elected the president. And the president appointed prime minister who established a cabinet of ministers. So that's the Somalia we have. We have a very clear mandate for four years, 2012-2016, which we are supposed to bring back all the foundations of a functioning state in place. Building the state institutions on one hand and fighting and winning the war against the extremists and terrorists on the other hand is among the set of challenges that Somalia of today is facing. Since we came into the office, the, we have a very clear program in state building reaching out the preferences, linking them to the center, establishing the federalism, establishing a program called the Vision 2016 that ends in 2016, whereby we want Somalia to have a permanent constitution, a federal units in place, electoral systems and political party laws in place and political parties establish it, and then people go to elections. Elections, uh, which Somalia is going to experience in 2016, after 45 years, the last time when elections took place in Somalia, uh, we can say uh, independent election took place in Somalia was 1969. So after 45 years, Somalia is now heading towards having uh, elections and 
the next parliament we expect will come through elections. Uh, some people do believe that uh, still it's not possible. We say it's possible, and we're working on that. Uh, people are asking what type of election, what will be the coverage, how far it will be free and fair. All these questions are there, but still we do believe that we, we can make it, and we are very much committed to make sure that elections happen in 2000, by the end of 2016. In brief, this is Somalia. Somalia is fighting with one of the uh, difficult wars that the, the world is facing today, an extremist and terrorist group called Al-Shabaab. Al-Shabaab is an organization based on ideology, and we all know that ideologies have no citizenship and have no boundaries. Al-Shabaab is Somali for one reason only. They operate in Somalia. They have their base in Somalia. They have their training camps in Somalia. They use Somalia as a transit stage that links Africa and Asia, where the terrorists move here and there. And these organizations, although they have different names, they all are linked some way or the other. There are very clear evidences that Al-Shabaab trained in Somalia and members of Boko Haram in Nigeria, the other part of the continent. Somalia is in the east, Nigeria in the west, and in between Mali, uh, Central African Republic, Chad, all of them. So that's how uh, Shabaab, but the, its leadership are not Somali. There are uh, more non-Somalis than Somalia at the highest level in the leadership. We have uh, people from the America, from North America, people from Europe, people from Asia, the Gulf, the, the uh, east, eastern part of the continent, Asian continent. So we have all the kind of people in place, our neighbors in Africa. But still, Somalia has got the name associated with Al-Shabaab. And that's the only reason. And why they operate in Somalia is Somalia has been, there was a vacuum for a long time. So this was a very breeding ground for them. In the last two years, uh, the African Union mission in Somalia and Somali National Army has um, jointly made operations against the, the territories that control Al-Shabaab. And these territories are uh, shrinking day after day, and the plans are now by the end of the year. There will not be, <coughs> sorry, there will not be a territory controlled by Al Shabaab in Somalia. But that does not mean it's the end of the war. The war will continue. Right now, when they lost the military front, they they just come back to the metropolitan places like Mogadishu, where more than two million people are living. They just melt down into the society, and they're doing this hit and run urban warfare, asymmetrical warfare, roadside bomb, target assassinations, and, and suicides. So it will take some time. The war is not one of military only. It has multifaceted uh, fronts, uh, economic front. Poverty is one of the... Poverty and grievances are always the two uh, 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 areas where al-Shabaab benefits within the society. Society that has been without a functioning state over two decades, wars, conflicts, clan, internal, so displacement, over two million people are not living in their home places in Somalia. 
almost 1.5 million outside the borders of Somalia, half a million inside us, IDBs. So this is the situation in brief in Somalia. But still we have that hope that we can defeat al-Shabaab. We can put back a functioning state institutions in place, one which is uh, have a strong democratic foundations. We're starting uh, everything from scratch. Maybe in some areas we have better chances than those who want to change systems that have been in place for a long time. So, in brief, this is Somalia. Thank you. Mr. President, thank you. That's an excellent introduction. <coughs> I wanted to just make two brief points and then ask a question. One is I want everyone who doesn't remember to understand that this president has his own mandate. He explained to us how there hasn't been an election in a long time, but he was chosen with a strong mandate by his parliamentarians. And so it's in that way that he came to power two years ago and enjoys a certain degree of democratic legitimacy, even though we haven't yet been able to see an election in Somalia in recent times. As he points out, there is a plan for that to happen now within a couple of years. Secondly, I was speaking with the president prior to the meeting, and I was consulting a map that was put out by a think tank in London just a few months ago. And I said to him, Mr. President, it looks to me as if you and the African Union are essentially governing maybe a quarter of the country in terms of territory and maybe half or a little more in terms of population. And what he said to me, and I'll give him a chance to further elucidate in a moment, was, well, that map must be a few months old because we're actually doing better than that now. The map may have been correct when it was printed six months ago, but we, we are continuing to expand uh, our control. And there really has been quite a notable progress in the degree to which the African Union and the government of Somalia have managed to consolidate a good chunk of the country, again, without defeating the threat and certainly without having made the necessary progress on the economic and development fronts yet, but nonetheless a very hopeful place. The broad question, if I could, Mr. Mm -hmm. President, uh, and I'm going to begin with a general question about the region, and we'll get back to Somalia very specifically in just a second, and then we'll stay there uh, with my part of the conversation. But I d did want to ask you to speak about the broader threat of extremism in the region, because it's clearly a concern all Americans and many others around the world share. We're waking up today to news about the latest uh, crisis in Iraq. I realize that al-Shabaab may have some ideological affinities with the ISIS group in Iraq and Syria. I would just ask if you wouldn't mind explaining from your perspective how you see the interlinkages between these groups. Are they still on the ascendance? Uh, how worried are you about them in a broader regional and global sense? And, and then we'll get back to Somalia specifically. Thank you very much, Mike. Uh, as you rightly said, uh, this is an ideology, and maybe they have a slight uh, different uh, color in one country or the other, in one continent or the other. But basically, these groups, they have a common principles and common ideology that they propagate all over the world, which is the one that is, called, uh, that is branded as extremism, everything to the hardliner, to the corner of the spectrum. There is, of course, links between them. Somalis were not. Sometime in, in early 2000, we were, all of us, with many of our international uh, partners who, or academicians who know Somalia, they claim that it's not possible that a Somali become a suicider. We don't have that type of history in the past. We don't have the culture of honor killing. We don't have this type of thing. So no one was believing that a suicide bomber Somali suicide bomber would ever come. And it was only 2000, late 2005, early 2006 when the first 
suiciders were being appeared in, in Mogadishu, uh, showing the people that they were fighting, doing this against the forces that they see as uh, occupiers or uh, things like that. But since then, it has been proven that uh, suicide is not something that belongs to one particular community or country or continent, but it's something that's made by people who knows how to make it, like uh, these terrorist groups, and it has been uh, it has been it has been realized that there are institutions, training camps that produces the suiciders, particularly very young people who still was born in that environment and who has no much uh, vision of the, what the world looks like. So then how it affects the region and the world is they train people there and they send. That's what happened in Kenya, what happened in Ethiopia, in Uganda, and maybe very far away places. They have training camps and that's where they brainwash the young people, that's why they show and they teach the people how to do these uh, terror activities. So it's a very serious concern for the region and for the continent and for the world at large. So it is indeed, Somalia is, uh, the problem of terrorism is not a Somali problem only. It's a regional, continental and international. So that's why we seeking the, the support from the outside world, and we're getting right now one from the uh, sub-region in the African continent, and the world is supporting both the Somali government, the Somali security forces, and the African Union mission to but The question I want to say again and again is that this war is not a military only, and we have uh, experience that uh, military cannot end up the war but we need to come up with other creating hope. I have a classical example that I always used to say, uh, a boy who was five years old in 1990 when the Somali state was collapsing. Today, he's 29 years old. And most probably, he got a wife and kids. He has never been to school, has never been exposed to any training, so he has no the tools of life in his own hands. They're in a very remote area, desperate, doesn't know what to do, cannot offer, cannot offer a cup of milk to his kids. That boy, he simply becomes very, very vulnerable to be recruited by Al-Shabaab. Come and join, and you will have $50 by the end of the month. Or he will be recruited by the pirates. Come and join us. We go to the sea, and in a few days or a month, so you have... <coughs> $100,000 with you. So it's a risk-taking worth. And this is what makes... And then this age group, unless are the bulk of the society, 65% of the population in Somalia is estimated that aged less than 35 years. So you can understand how huge is the number in the society. And the people is this quality. Even if you provide them an opportunity to employment today, the question is, are they employable? Can they be employed? Using the AK-47 gun does not need much training and does not need any specific qualification. So everybody can hold and use it. So that's the easiest way to earn a life. So developing and providing alternative way of life 
for those young generation is among the, the challenges that the Somali government is facing right now. And this is an area where the, our international partners are showing a, a minimum understanding. Uh, maybe the world is very ready to support in the security sector, but, but creating an alternative way of life, providing training facility for them, skills training, and then providing uh, gainful employment opportunity. These are some of the things that proves to be a bit difficult to convince the, our international partners, but we're doing very, very hard, and we believe that yeah, the military campaign is only one part of the war. There are other parts of the war which we have to uh, uh, win also. Excellent. So let me just ask two more questions in that spirit. First of all, I want to ask a little bit more about your uh, plan for consolidating control in security terms without asking you to give away detailed mm -hmm. campaign plans, uh, but with an eye towards where the international community could help more. But then secondly, I want to come back and ask, what can we do as an international community mm -hmm. on the economic and development front, mm -hmm. your, your concern that you mentioned? And I think between both of these, we'll have the issue of political reconciliation mm -hmm. that I know you think about a great deal. Mm -hmm. So let me ask about security. The, the trends are favorable. Maybe you could tell us a little bit more about the progress of the last year, just briefly, to help people understand that there really is positive momentum. But as you look forward towards your goals for the next one to two years, could you explain what your concerns are and where you perhaps could use even a little more help or a little more capability to make the odds of success greater than they might currently be for consolidating more control over the country? Well, security was the top priority of my government at the beginning in early 2013, last year. And since then, we've been working uh, improving the, the capacity of the security institutions building the security institutions and uh, professional security forces with national character, not one particular group of the society, but all the, all the different sectors of the society. That was the, the, the aim and the, ta the plan of the government. Uh, the reality in the ground sometimes uh, distracts you away from what you have planned, and the war, on one hand, building the forces, and on the other hand, fighting the war it was the challenge, as I said earlier. The Somali National Army, the Somali Police Force, and the Somali National Intelligence and Security Agents, these are the three major components in the security sector of Somalia. The custodian corps will, will, uh, will follow. Now, we started from scratch uh, converting the militia forces into uh, professional national forces, which, which, I say, which, as I said, have a national character. Uh, proves to be very, very difficult, but it's doable, and we, we're doing. We have not yet completed everything, but we, are, we did a lot of progress. Now, uh, we, and we got enough support in that area. The European Union has provided a European Union training mission in Somalia. This mission used to be outside Somalia and training Somalis out. Last year, we agreed to shift them back into Somalia. Now they are in Somalia, and they are training uh, uh, inside Somalia. Somalis are training the normal soldiers, but specialized courses, specialized uh, trainings, uh, European Union training mission is supporting. Similarly, the United States is supporting in training special forces, uh, whereby we think the, the, the seat of uh, uh, a national army in, of the future 
is now beginning with uh, uh, starting with uh, special forces uh, training inside Somalia. So this is going on. Equipping those forces is there still, but we don't have enough equipment yet, but it is supported. And the Somali government has uh, allocated enough of its budget on the security sector, uh, improving the quality, improving the equipment, improving the care of the, of the forces. These are areas that we are concentrating and it's go going well. So that area of security sector uh, development is, is moving in, in a very good uh, pace. Uh, regarding the territory, uh, Shabab has been operating almost 11 regions out of the 18 regions of Somalia. Uh, the remaining seven regions, mainly were Somaliland, Puntland, where there was relative stability in place for some time. The central regions and the southern regions were the ones that were facing the difficulties of Somalia. Now, the Somali government has succeeded to take over all the regional headquarters of, of these 11 regions. And now, most of the districts, there were 25 districts that were under control of Shabab last year. Uh, today, there are less than 15 districts that are remaining under their control. And that's what I'm saying by the end of the, of the year, we are expecting that there will be no one district that's under control of Shabab. But Somalia is a vast area. When you chase them away from the districts and the towns, they go into the rural area. And that's where they remain threat to the community and they use the means of terror people. If you deal with the government, if you deal with government forces, this is the punishment. Beheading, slashing, killings, and so on. So this is how things are going. And now they're changing the tactics into asymmetrical warfare in the urban places. I'm sure that uh, at least we will succeed soon to eliminate all the training camps and all the bomb-making factories in the rural areas. So our war will continue maybe in the urban places. And this will continue for some time. We're not expecting that soon there will not be a suicide bomb or a roadside bomb or things like that. But most of it will continue. In the meantime, we've been developing. One of the challenges was uh, in the Somali laws, we were not having any law for terrorism and all this. It was not part of the norm in the Somalia. So in the courts, the common criminal who maybe stabbed someone with a knife, and the one who explodes 100 people in, in a place. Maybe we have the same uh, criminal uh, acts to, to make them. So many of the Shabab in the past, they walked easily, the, of the courts, because of the, the government's burden of proof for what they did. And the laws we were having, uh, some of the current evidence, electronic evidences were not evidences in those laws. Now, this has changed now. There's a new act of terror that the, the, the Somali government has prepared and is almost now, now finished. So the treatment of Shabab is now different legally and the war has now a legal base to fight uh, against the, the, the terrorists and those who collaborate with them. 
So this is this is the situation in general. Uh, but uh, you know, uh, we cannot claim the the final victory of the war today. But we are very much. The situation is much much different than to today. The Somali government has succeeded to organize the society, mobilize the whole nation uh, to fight against the Shabab. So uh, the rural nomadic people, the camel, the camel herders are today in many parts of Somalia fighting the Shabab, not only the government and the African Union forces, but the society now understood that there's no future without Shabab and they, they are fighting. So that makes their, their days now uh, limited. Thank you. I, I'm going to ask one derivative question mm -hmm. before going back to the economics and development. And I think you can probably help us here. And this may seem like just a semantic question, but it relates mm -hmm. to the broader issue of the international threat. Uh, I was careful when I asked you about the international threat not to use the word uh, Islamic extremism. Mm -hmm. uh, I also didn't say jihadist extremism. We Americans are still searching for the right way to describe this threat and understand the threat because mm -hmm. We know that jihad is actually a legitimate activity within Islam, and it's generally not a violent activity. It's a lifelong quest to become closer mm -hmm. uh, to one's maker, as I understand it. Uh, and therefore, I'm wondering if you can help us understand and properly describe the international threat. I don't want to make this all about a label, but what do you call the broader movement that has its tentacles in your country through al-Shabaab, in Boko Haram in Nigeria, with ISIS in Iraq and Syria, with the elements, the residual elements of Al-Qaeda Central over in Pakistan and the tribal areas, uh, and then also Afghanistan. How do you describe the overall movement? Is it takfiri? Is it uh, Salafist? Uh, what kind of a term do you use? Well, I would, li I would, I would use the term extremism. Uh, I will not rather use either uh, jihadist or Islamist or whatever. These are, as you rightly said, are maybe are not the right uh, nomenclatures. But extremism, the, the, the kamikaze of Japan were not Muslims. The IRA of uh, Ireland were not Muslims. And all of them, they were doing suicide. So it's uh, everything that one gets to the extreme makes him to do that type of behavior, killing mass, the people in mass, ex ex killing himself uh, while he's still happy and, and smiling, feeling that he's, he's victorious while, while he's killing himself. So this is the nature of when people go to the extreme, whatever basis that, whether it's a religious, whether it is a nationalism, whether it is something else. So I would have uh, liked to call these uh, people extremists. Thank you. Let me get back now to the challenge that you said is the one that we've neglected the most as an international community, which is now building on the military and security progress in your country to get to the development challenge, which is the only way to make the security progress durable, as I think I understood you to say. What do we need to do better? Maybe you could begin by telling us a little bit about what you're able to do today, uh, and then that will naturally lead into a discussion of what you think you need to do more and how we can help. In, in, many, uh, in many times, the, there is a very clear link between uh, poverty and extremism, uh, uh, poverty and, and the hope. When people lo lost the hope, uh, 
they become very fragile and very easily to be influenced in whichever way, direction. Uh, an inorganized group wants people to move, hiring them with very small amount of money, threatening them easily, showing them there is a better way of doing things than just being uh, remain idle. There. So uh, there are so many, there are many uh, areas that in Somalia now the question is which comes first, the security, full security and stability to be put in place, and then only we start the development or a lack of development feeds the insecurity that exists. When the people has no opportunity to leave, the people has no chances, then we cannot be secure. And if there is no security, we cannot attract investment and uh, uh, big projects to come so that people get employment and all this. So the whole thing links together. What the approach we're using is that wherever there is a relative security, we need to start. Uh, some economic activity so that the people can, can do. And security right now is more of perception than reality. Uh, recently, uh, research indicates that Mogadishu is not among the top uh, dangerous cities of the world. It's not number one, number two, number five, even it's not number six, number seven. There are uh, cities that today, in the eyes of the people, seems to be very secure cities, but Research shows that they are, there are more deaths uh, in Mogadishu than more deaths in those cities than in Mogadishu. So, it's secured more of it is perception. Somalia is a wrong place. It has been there. It's a no-go. In 2011, uh, 2012, early, many of our internal partners called Somalia it's a no-go, and you remember it that. The Prime Minister of Turkey, his family, uh, more of his cabinet were there, and they were moving uh, in Mogadishu, all the corners. And by that time, the young boys and the girls who walk the international NGOs were not allowed to go to Mogadishu because it's not secure. It's not safe enough. So it's more of, more of perception than, than a reality, the security issue. But the most important thing we'd like to say is that economic endeavor should start it has to go hand in hand with the security progress we're making. And that's what's happening. Today, Mogadishu is a different place. Roads are rehabilitated well. A lot of people get employment. New hotels emerge, new malls and supermarkets emerge, new business is taking place. So it's moving. There are a road rehabilitation program that will start soon in the two adjacent regions to Mogadishu, which are the food basket of Somalia, to make at least uh, the agricultural produce reach the major markets easily. Somalia, particularly in the southern part, we started the export of livestock, and in a couple of months we will be starting the export of banana again, uh, after almost 18 years. So life is coming back like that. It's, it's a bit slow. But it's coming, and this is very important. In one project in Mogadishu, where there was a training center, was the building of a huge training complex was there. 2,000 people were working for six months. After six months, it gradually declined, and another six months, maybe uh, 1,700, 800 people will go as the project ends. So 2,000 people getting employed today earning something 
was very so and that was only one project when we have number of that project is in different places now we're going to start 100 kilometer uh, uh, road reconstruction in three different places so 300 kilometers of road will reconstruction will start soon so that will be employed so this is these are some of the things and Somalia is getting back to to the world arena of course the banana we use it to export to Europe but today it's not possible because of the quality standards criteria but still we have a very large market in the Arabian Gulf which we can export both meat livestock hides and skins banana sesame and many other agricultural produce so Somalia is just getting back its economic activities uh, alive. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, 
but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. How can we help more? And here I want to make clear, I'm not necessarily asking you to repeat mm -hmm. what you might have asked President Obama earlier mm -hmm. this week or what you might have asked any specific member of Congress this week because any I'm sure any such conversations first of all might have been private or secondly mm -hmm. might have been constrained by by politics and by budgets but if we can just put that aside just to help us think through the real needs in Somalia and where you would like the international community to do more are there specific kinds of funds tasks expertise where we should be trying to find the ability and the resources to, to do more than we're doing today? The needs of Somalia, if we just try to list, the, the, the list is endless. It's too long. And uh, the challenge is how do we prioritize those long list of needs? Which ones are the ones that if we succeed uh, will become a sort of triggering effect for others to also move forward. So security has been number one priority in Somalia. And then the state building program, building institutions, capacitating the institutions with qualified people, with uh, norms, uh, rules, regulations, procedures put in place so that uh, the old practices will be changed. That itself is a, another priority area. The, other prior, this, the third priority area is the issue of economic recovery. The country has been in an emergency stage, state for a long time. Now we are very much uh, focused on moving the country from emergency to recovery and then from recovery to, to development. So making that happen and what we have been and what we have been presenting to our international partners in the New Deal program uh, last year in Brussels uh, and in London also last year and here in the United States is how Somalia can be supported in the issue of the capacity building of the institutions. And then 
the development of this part of development of human capital, which is training uh, and all this is education, and the development of the infrastructure. When one opportunity is, exists in one corner of Somalia, and the other corner of Somalia, there is a need for that particular facility or opportunity, but it's very difficult to move because there are no roads, there are no bridges, or uh, because uh, there are no human capital that is uh, strong enough to make this thing useful to the country. These are the areas that we have been. So there are sub, sub, sub areas of all of them, but uh, capacitating the state institutions, uh, capacitating the human, uh, uh, human capital of Somalia, and then developing the infrastructure, roads, energy, bridges, ports, airports, these are, so within each there are certain sub-priorities sub of where to start, but these are the overall major areas that we have been focusing in the last uh, one year or so. Thank you very much. I'm going to open it up now, so please, uh, once I call on you, wait for a microphone and we'll go from there. Begin with the gentleman here in the second row. Okay. Uh, thank you, Joe. Uh, the issue of TA the American Somali citizen in Belgium. We have contacted with the Belgium authorities. Uh, our ambassador in Brussels have been constantly engaging. But you see, it is a case that is in the uh, judicial system of the uh, uh, government of Belgium. And uh, we're following closely uh, the case and the, our ambassador continuously visits them in the, in the prison. Uh, that's the, right now what the Somali government, we have been in contact with their lawyers and uh, whatever necessary information that the Somali government has that supports this case has been provided to them and just we're waiting the result of the courts. So that's the case in the court and the Somali government is closely uh, watching and working with the lawyers. Our ambassador is in charge of that in Brussels. Regarding the role of the United States, yes, uh, but Mogadishu, as you rightly said, is not uh, as dangerous as maybe Baghdad and Kabul, but it has one difference. In Baghdad and Kabul, there are American forces in place who at least can guarantee the security of the American staff in the ground. In Somalia, we don't have the American forces in the ground. In the ground. So it took a bit longer, but now we have an embassy, our embassy here in Washington, Albany. We appointed a, a new uh, ambassador. Uh, similarly, the United States is opening soon its embassy in Mogadishu, appointing a new ambassador, uh, replacing the special representative now we have uh, in Nairobi. And this ambassador and his staff would be placed in Mogadishu, and they will be operated. So that will take the relationship between Somalia and USA a different level. And uh, we expecting that soon will happen. Already facilities are in preparation for the new uh, ambassador that will be coming to Mogadishu. So United States government has already uh, assured, give us the assurance that soon the ambassador will be in Mogadishu. So on Right now, the last year we have been, the relationship between the United States and Somalia, Somalia has been improving 
and making a lot of progress. With the two ambassadors now in place, we are expecting that a further improvement of progress will take place in our uh, relationship. Uh, on the other hand, yes, United States is, is, is supporting Somalia in the security sector, but not only in the security sector. United States is supporting in all those major donor, traditional donor of Somalia throughout the years. The only thing is now the kind of aid that was given Somalia now is different. Mainly, the, previously, it was more focused on emergence, food handouts, water tracking, uh, health facilities like a vaccination. This, was, uh, this is needed. Still, the need for that is there. Uh, but uh, we have been engaging with the United States government to increase the, the, the support and to diversify it instead of emergency package only, recovery package, capacitating the state, working with the Somalia, having a new constitution, a new uh, set of laws, all this is the areas where the United States right now is supporting the support of the United States. It's not limited to the security sector only. It is, it's very wide. Next question. Ma'am, here in the third row. Uh, Mr. President, thank you so very much for coming to speak with us today. Um, my name is Deirdre Lapin. I'm attached to the Africa Center at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, before 1990, I was the planning officer for UNICEF in Mogadishu and helped to evacuate the UN from Hargeza in 1988. Um, so my heart still is very much with the country. I wanted to ask you if you have any plans to harness the tremendous talent of the Somali diaspora around the world. Uh, most uh, Somali extended families have members who live in communities all over uh, the globe, uh, and this talent, uh, their wealth, and their knowledge uh, could do a great deal to rebuild Somalia. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, you, you touched a very important area, the Somali diaspora. The Somali diaspora is a national wealth for Somalia. It is an asset, and it's proving that that asset is very, very useful to Somalia. Today, if you go to Mogadishu, the, the economic activities that are going on in Mogadishu today mainly is, is, is done by the diaspora. Uh, the new technologies that are there, the hospitality industry that's emerging now, all these are uh, diaspora-run uh, uh, business uh, organizations. And in other sectors, if you go to the ministries of the Somali government, there is no one single ministry, if you go today, that you will not see four or five diaspora people working in that ministry. Some of them embedded by some partners. Some of them, they come there as volunteers. So it's there still. Uh, but I think uh, the, the usefulness of diaspora is more than that. Still, we, we're working on organizing further, but the, we're still feeling in the ground the, the usefulness of the, of the diaspora. They are there. But we're still feeling that we, more organization and more harnessing is needed to, to get the maximum benefit out of our uh, a huge diaspora that is in both North America and Europe and in the Gulf states. So it is, it is it's, the diaspora is in that situation.
thank you for coming, Mr. President. Uh, my name is Huda Ibrahim. I am a graduate uh, student at the University of Notre Dame. Uh, my question uh, to you is, you mentioned Al-Shabaab and um, military force is not the only solution to defeat Al-Shabaab. And my question to you is, is there a room uh, for the Somali elders to negotiate between the government and, uh, and Al-Shabaab? Or is there any other alternative to um, talk with um, the other person? Thank you. Thank you, Huda. Uh, my government is a government that come in place through reconciliation, through uh, negotiations, and through dialogue among the different clans, different elders, different uh, social uh, forces that exist in Somalia today. So the door of dialogue is always open. Those of, and the government has very clearly articulated the way forward for that. Anybody who denounces the violence, the rest we can negotiate. Whatever ideology he believes, we are ready to negotiate with him. Whatever uh, style of governance in the country that he would like to see, we, we are ready to negotiate. But the only thing that is negotiable, that's not negotiable, is the violence, killing the people at mass, a lot of them, disturbing the social life, uh, manipulating the, because of the certain weaknesses that circumstances as compared to the Somali society, benefiting out of that and then changing the social fabric of the whole nation. These are some of the difficult things that are not easy to, to, to negotiate or to accept. But and we have said a number of times, we have produced a document on that. Uh, publicly, we, we, we said the first, the only condition that we have with them is to denounce the violence, period. Denounce the violence, denounce the ideology of Shabab, which is violence-based, extremism-based. The rest we can negotiate. And that door is open. And we have a very good number of young people who came back uh, through this uh, process of, and we established a centers uh, for them uh, so that we can make sure that they, they are back and we have people to have a dialogue with these young boys when they are in that center. And then they are given skills training. Some of them, they were young boys who come from different corners of Somalia. And when they went through these rehabilitation centers, uh, we called their elders, and they, they took back to the community. So it's already there. The mechanism is there. And there's a very good number of young people coming through that. But the top group, the Shabab, mainly they consist of three, three groups. One group is the bulk of the fighting force, young boys that have been distorted, that has been misled by using a religious approach, by using that economic approach and many others. That's one group. The, there is another group, and that's the bulk. There's another group which next to that, which is, belongs to minority, minority clans or minority groups that have been pressured and subjected to maybe unfair treatment by major clans. So they have sense of revenge, and Shabab give them opportunity, come and to your revenge. Get the gun, kill their elders, kill their intellectuals. Nobody can take you to. So they utilize that sort of grievance, grievance in, in some 
parts of the society. The third is the core group, which is the leadership, amniyat, those who are committed to the ideology, many of them non-Somalis. So we, we're dealing with these three different groups, the bulk of them trying to provide economic opportunity, training, new skills, so that they can be easily employed. The other group who got that revenge using reconciliation, the elders, that they will not be punished because of what they have done, but they need to recognize that they, and then ask forgiveness, or that process is, is still there. The third group, I don't think we have a readily available tool for them. The foreigners, they have to go home. This is not their country. And the others, as I said, if they denounce the violence and the extremism, this is their country, they can be part of the mainstream of the society. So there is a possibility of negotiation, reconciliation possible. Michael, back in the fifth row. Thank you. Michael Kallingart, Brookings and Council for United States in Italy. Uh, I was a diplomat in Somalia long ago. Uh, I was in Mogadishu before independence and after independence. And I was there on July 1, 1960, when proclamation of independence was made. Uh, one question. Um, at the time, there was a lot of interest and concern, not only Somalia, but all the emerging countries of Africa, of uh, how this was going to work out. One cause of concern was uh, tribalism, if that's the right term, the existence of the clans, which in a sense provided some stability and democracy, but also was a cause of uh, conflict and tension, and certainly uh, the history of Somalia as of late 1960s bears that out. So my question is, uh, what about today? Uh, is that still an issue? Uh, what is the, the clan division, and what is the role and significance of that today? Uh, first of all, Somalia has no tribes, uh, but Somalia has clans. Somalia is one tribe. When we got the, the definition of tribe in line with the tribes in Africa, Kikuyu, uh, Hausa, uh, this kind of tribes, when you, when you look, Somalia is one tribe with the same language, same features, same culture, same everything. But we have clans. And it's the social way of life, the social architecture of the Somalis is clans. It's there. Uh, and clans were a social structure that was very useful in the nomadic society, in the rural areas, and in, in the old traditions. But it shows to be a little bit difficult and maybe not as good as it is in other parts of the social life in the politics. Clans are, uh, have a very limited interest and the scope of the clan is limited and the national politics is uh, ideas that uh, concerns all the Somalis and all the geographical location of Somalia. Clans, they have uh, a way, way of life and how to deal with the neighboring clan, not the one next to that even. The traditional uh, laws or the customary laws that depends on the context of that clan. There are certain Somali level uh, customary laws, but mainly it is situ contextual and situational. So, Kalan is proved to be not very much useful in the, in the politics, national politics, and as you said, it's still there because in Somalia we don't have uh, political parties, we don't have trade unions, 
We don't have other professional associations. So the only means of association we have is the clan. So we're using it, and that's how today the, the, the 4.5 formula used to reorganize uh, the political uh, topography of Somalia. So clans are still there. They have major influence in the politics, and sometimes good, but sometimes very difficult to, to um, make with them align with the modern thinking of, of, of state building. So the challenges are still there, but uh, this is who we are, and this is what we are. We, we use them in, as the, the good trends and the good aspects the clan has. If I could just interject before going back to the audience, is it time for Somalia to consider political parties? Is that something that should arise either before or maybe shortly after the 2016 elections? Or do you think that that's just going to have to happen if and when it ever happens? Or should it be something that you consider encouraging as president? No, even today in Somalia there are political parties established by the civil society members, established by different groups. Groups who are not attaching much hope to the clan politics. The only thing is that still uh, our uh, political uh, f uh, structure or the, the framework uh, is not yet uh, well established. The laws that govern the political pluralism is not yet fully in place. We're working on that in the parliament. So we have the political parties already there, people organizing, trying to organize themselves on the basis of the idea, the political idea they have and the political vision they have on Somalia. But uh, we cannot say that that's exactly a political party at the standard of other places where the rules of the game are in place. But Somalia, we need to start somewhere and, and that's the beginning. And I'm sure it will, it will improve. Somalis are people who are very entrepreneurial, uh, catching up new ideas and improving new ideas. Already it's, it's there. The only limitation that we have is still the, these rules are not yet finalized in many parts. So we're working on it. And before the year ends, we will have the political party law in place. And you will see political parties mush mushrooming in Somalia. Well, uh, there are a lot, a lot of questions on, on aid and its effectiveness uh, all over the world, we know. Aid is useful when it's used properly, when it's, used, when it's provided the right time, when it's provided in the right area, and when it's led by the needs identified by the recipients, not by, the, by those who provide it but the recipients will say, this is the need we have today. But many times aid uh, is already decided somewhere else and people got packages that are readily available, but not necessarily that that package responds to the needs of, of, the, of the recipient. So it all depends on how we, we manage the aid, but uh, aid is useful. And in a country like Somalia, in the history of the post-conflict environment, there is no one country in the world that experienced a state collapse and came back by its own without international support. Every country that got out of the, of the post-conflict situation was done so with the support of outside, whether that is a, 
multilateral organizations of the UN or regional organizations, or whether it, 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 it comes from friendly country, uh, like what the United Kingdom did in Sierra Leone or what uh, French did in Cambodia or what ECOWAS or what now African Union is doing in Somalia. So there's one way or the other always in post-conflict. Otherwise, the transition will take longer and longer, and that's the experience of Somalia. It took us 12 years to transit from uh, stateless to uh, state. 12 years transition. Why? One of the reasons was Somalia was not given the proper uh, aid at the right time and in the right place. So it prolonged the transition. So countries may come back at the end, but it will take long, and it will, they will pay a heavy price on that. So aid is always, Somalia is not an exception in one aspect, it's part of the post-conflict environment in the world. And on, on the other hand, Somalia is an exception because it's almost now, the coming January 2015, 26th January will be 25th year since the collapse of the state in Somalia, a quarter of a century is a long time. So that makes Somalia exception and we need uh, exceptional treatment even in the aid to Somalia compared to countries who have been in civil war or state collapse three years, four years, five years. It's different when you be there for 25 years or 20 plus years. So aid is useful if it is, fills this type of criteria. Somalia is not an exception compared to other post-conflict on one hand. On the other hand, it's an exception because it's the longest uh, state collapse that the modern history of the world is experiencing today. Thank you. Here in the front row, and then after that, we'll go to the gentleman right behind. Hi, I'm Matt Simonson. I work at the Search for Common Ground. Um, I'm wondering, as your state modernizes and develops, will there be a future for the nomadic herders in the countryside it, with that lifestyle? Well, uh, the traditional way of life is, is nomadic uh, in the rural area. And the Somalis, they are herders uh, looking after their cattle, camel, and goats, uh, searching constantly for water and, and pasture. Uh, and traditionally, uh, the traditional conflicts of Somalia was based on that, uh, looking water and grazing for the livestock. Now, that's the way of life. We do not intend to, to change that uh, life as people uh, calling them all to, to come to the urban area, no. But we wanted to improve uh, the nomadic life, provide them the facilities that is available. It's very difficult when the society is in community is in constant move to plan and present. But even then, Somalia has uh, experience in how to deal with this because this is what we have been doing in the third years of we were a state and and so the intention is to improve the life, to to, to provide the veterinary service for the livestock, to provide health service for the for the them, to provide education for their kids but not to change the whole thing and say now you become sedentary or you become, no, that will not be possible. The Somalis, this, this is the, the way of life and we do believe if we, if we improve that and uh, we, instead of g getting the traditional 
practices of livestock herding, if we introduce new, new technology, new ways of herding the livestock in the modern sense, I think economically it will produce uh, very good for the country and it will give better life for the, for the without changing their, their way of life and their culture. Before going to the gentleman here in the second row, let me interject a quick question that's partly related, uh, although it's a little more geographic in mm -hmm. scope. Do you have a long-term vision for Somaliland and the Puntland to be reintegrated under common uh, leadership and common governance? Or is that too distant of a prospect, even if you might still hope for it, too distant of a prospect for us to be talking about at this stage? Yes, uh, the unity of the country uh, making Somalia united again and one country and functioning under one state uh, was a priority for us. And day one, when I come to the office, we start. There is a negotiation is going on uh, with Somaliland in Turkey, Istanbul. Uh, there were four sessions in the last year and the beginning of this year. And still this is going on. Uh, we are much, much closer than we were two years ago, because two years ago we were not talking to each other. Now at least we're talking. We have people who are known to be the negotiators of the unity of Somaliland and the rest, the rest of Somalia. So this is going on, and we are very much hopeful that it will happen. Uh, we work in a framework now to agree that uh, Somalia will remain united. How on which means, what will be the style of governance. What will be, these are questions that will come later on, but now we're trying to uh, move the obstacles that make the unity to dysfunction in over uh, 20 years now. So with Somaliland, this is going on. With Buntland, the case is completely different. Buntland has never claimed that they secede Somalia. They always have been part of Somalia. But as in my introduction, as I said, the challenge of the center attracting the preference is, is one, and it's not only Puntland. In many other regions, the government is continuously working. There is a program we call the stabilization program that's working. And the top leadership of the government is making reach, reach out into the regions and into the different administrations that are existing. Those that were existing, before we came, like Bontelan, we, we continued. I visited Bontelan, the Prime Minister visited, uh, the President of Bontelan visited Mogadishu. Uh, we continuously interacted, the Ministry uh, Education sector working together, health working together, but still uh, we are not as, as solid as uh, we would have liked to see. So the negotiation is two layers. One is with Somaliland, who claims that they are not part of Somalia anymore. That's a completely different negotiation. And one that says, yes, I'm part of Somalia, but I have X concern or Y concern, or I want to see this thing happen like that, or I want uh, that much of autonomy. This is something that's going on, and, and still as going on with that dialogue, then making the constitution, we, we, the dialogue is taking place in, in a structured manner on, on the constitution. Uh, jointly, we established, uh, uh, the government of Somalia established, for example, an independent uh, constitutional commission that comprises 
Somalis, different uh, Somalis, whether administration, whether clans and all this, put together to negotiate on the terms of the constitution. Similarly, another commission are in place, which again uh, consists of different Somalis and regions geographically on the issue of federalism, what type of federalism, to what extent, what will be. So these are things that are going on at two levels. One level of the unity, one level of state building. I'm going to take two last questions together, if I could, as a final round here, and then we'll wrap up. Uh, so here in, in the second row, and then over to the gentleman in the front row. And I'm afraid we're going to have to stop there. All right. President, thank you uh, for this opportunity, and welcome to the United States. My name is Gladius Johannes. I'm from Ethiopia. But my first question that been asked was the role of the diaspora in terms of capacity building. Uh, the party's answer. The other thing, my background is international relations and media and communication. One thing I'm working is on a series of documentary films engaging the African diaspora and development, because partly in terms of remittances, capacity, and intellectual capacity, all that stuff. But the idea is how is the current government, is he using media and technology to change the perception of the, or the process what you guys go through, the opportunities that are available, is that accessible to other medias, that, is there information available for us to change this perception images and to engage people in other investment or other in terms of capacity. And we can just pass the mic right over here and we'll do the two questions together if mm -hmm. that's okay. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> good morning. Uh, thank you, Mr. President, uh, for your, uh, uh, for informing this community about Somalia and, and I appreciate. As a member of the Somali diaspora, I had the privilege to work in Somalia in the year 2010 and work for the transitional federal government. So there is or already a contribution uh, of the Somali diaspora to Somalia. But 40 years ago uh, this year, Somalia embarked on a campaign to improve literacy in Somalia, <coughs> the Somali literacy campaign of 1974-75, which improved literacy levels from 5% to 65%. Uh, as we know today, literacy uh, in Somalia is at the lower levels. Even uh, for, for, for men, it's about 35%, and for women and, and youth, it's below that, under 30%. What plans do we have to commemorate the 40-year anniversary of Somali literacy campaign? And could this be a tool to help the youth and the communities uh, learn the language, learn how to read and write, and get uh, employment opportunities uh, with education as a tool? Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, both uh, Dr. Abdenur and Johannes. Uh, if I go to the question of the media, uh, Somalia enjoys, uh, I can claim that Somalia enjoys the largest uh, media freedom that exists today in, in, in Africa and in that part of Africa, particularly Somalia situated. We have a large number of media, both uh, uh, TV and the radio and the websites. In Mogadishu alone, we have more than two dozen radios operating and we have in Somalia around seven TVs that are uh, on the satellite, people using, and let alone uh, hundreds of websites that are uh, Somali in Somali language and operated by Somalis. So that's it. And the media, it is the Somali diaspora and the Somalis who who make this happen. Even before, long before the media law was in place. Right now, we are organizing and establishing the media law 
Recently, there were discussions with the media people and the Minister of Information in Mogadishu on the media law. There were three sessions, uh, each one a uh, minimum of three days, some of them five days, on the, discussing the, the media law before it's presented to Parliament. Now, this has been finalized consultations and now it's on the, the parliament. The parliament right now is in recess, but when they come back, it will be one of the first legislations that will be passed. So today Somalia is enjoying uh, a lot of, yes, it's a very difficult area. A lot of media people have been killed uh, throughout the war by the extremists. But even then, the Somali community, but there is issue of regulation and all this is needed, issue of capacity, issue. There are always issues and there are always room to improve what's going on. But compared to many of our neighbors, Somalia is much, much ahead in terms of media today in, in, in both. And on top of that, Somalia today, uh, the fiber optic cable landed in Somalia, in Mogadishu, and this uh, media... Uh, quality and the capacity will further improve, improve with the use of this uh, fast internet facility that's today available uh, in Mogadishu. So uh, media is there and uh, is, it's very good and very useful. We call it it's, the media is the, the eyes and the ears of the people. We always tell them and advise them to tell the, peop to tell the people good things put in their eyes, in their ears, and to show the, the, the people also a good thing. Uh, in places like Somalia, there are so many bad things that can, be, that can be presented, but what's important is to show. And that slogan is there uh, in, in the media uh, society of Somalia. When I come back to uh, Dr. Abdunur's question about the literacy, that's right, and I'm proud to be one of those young Somalis who went to the rural area for the literacy campaign in the 1974. Uh, and recently, I, I visited the place where I went that day uh, a few weeks back as a president again, as a young boy in the, in the intermediate school in those days. So it is there. That was a very, very huge undertaking by that time. When the Somali language was written, then literacy campaign uh, took place and it changed a lot. But as he rightly said, now it declined back again. Uh, today we have 25% uh, of the school age children going to school. 75% are not going to school. Uh, Dr. Abdanur has been working in the education and today, uh, only last year, we succeeded to re-establish the public education, public schools. Before there were schools, but they were private schools. And schools run by NGOs, but even then community contribution, some amount of money has always been there. Only last year we started that there are public schools that uh, by the end of the month, the parents are not asked uh, to pay $10. 1,500 teachers recruited and around 50,000 students enrolled the first academic year. The second academic year is starting right now. Uh, we, we are expecting more will be recruited, more students will be enrolled, and more teachers will be recruited. It's a, it's a matter of... Uh, Again, goes back to a matter of financing, uh, to rehabilitate the schools, to recruit teachers, to pay them, to train them. And this is, uh, uh, it needs a lot of resources.
we are partnering with the uh, international partners like the USAID, whom we have extensive discussion with them uh, yesterday and the day before yesterday in supporting the education. But Somalia now has a public schooling is coming back after 23 years. So literacy, as you rightly said, it went back, but we have now in place to establish, first of all, the public schools back, then the adult education system, then later on we may take the campaign similar to that of uh, 40 years ago. Thank you. Well, as we conclude here, let me uh, voice a couple of quick thank yous. First to Alan and Jane Batkin for sponsoring this Statesman's Forum at which we've been honored to have the President of Somalia today. Second to all my Brookings colleagues uh, as well as friends here at SEIU for making this event happen and doing all the hard work with logistics and everything else. Uh, third, I think we should all be grateful to our security personnel. They don't like us to talk about them too much. They do a great job discreetly, but they've had quite a week here in Washington, <laughs> and we want to extend our gratitude. Uh, and then uh, most of all, of course, to our distinguished guest today, the President of Somalia, Hassan Sheikh Mohammed. Thank you very much for being here. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always... Please spread the word and promote the Lawfare podcast via your social networks on Twitter, Facebook, email, and in any other way you can. Thanks for listening. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.